Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, vaccinations in Ontario's long-term care homes have prevented hundreds of COVID-19 deaths and thousands of infections. Dr. Paula Rashan joins us with the details of the long-term care report from the COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Pressure on the Prime Minister continues to grow as Canada's world ranking on vaccines slips further away. And will Ontario welcome spring in a third wave and another lockdown? And the U.S. has issued new guidelines for those of us who are fully vaccinated whenever that's going to happen. Canada hasn't done that yet, but will we? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, get right down to it and talk about vaccinations and uh, similar things, because there was a report that was just released that indicates that vaccinations here in Ontario's long-term care homes have actually prevented hundreds of COVID-19 deaths and thousands of infections. Global's Brianna Carnegie says that according to the report released by the Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Table, things are looking pretty good. Researchers believe coronavirus vaccinations have saved lives in the long-term care sector, preventing over 600 deaths and 2,600 infections. The report from Ontario's Science Advisory Table shows eight weeks after vaccinations began, infections were reduced by 89% among LTC residents. The number of deaths dropped by 96%. Although vaccine uptake among long-term care staff is lower than expected, the report states supports such as paid time off, sick leave, or transportation may be needed to help close the vaccination gap, which it calls an essential item. It also emphasizes public health measures need to be maintained until at least herd immunity is reached. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. So let's uh, break this down and find out just what the messaging is from uh, the data that we've got here. Uh, to do that, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Paula Roshan, a senior scientist with the Women's College Research Institute and a professor in the Department of Medicine and Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation at the University of Toronto. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. I'm so glad you could be with us here today. Good morning. I'm pleased I mean, to be with you. Let me ask you if I could, Doctor. These are encouraging numbers, obviously, uh, when we look at the impact that uh, the vaccination program has had on long-term care facilities. 89% uh, fewer infections, 79% among the workers. Can we anticipate that when the the rollout starts for the general population that the the successful numbers are going to be just as good as these? Well, I, I think you're right. This is really good news, and there hasn't been, I would say, a lot of good news uh, for older people and especially those in long-term care since the pandemic started, which is, you know, just about uh, almost exactly a year ago. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to think that, you know, long-term care residents really represent only about a half a percent of Ontario's population, but, you know, they have, you know, definitely been hit so hard by this. But I, I think one of the things that comes out of the information that we've got here that was, you know, based on a study that we did looking at the long-term care sector is that this tells us that it, it definitely works in that long-term care sector. And importantly, as you say, you know, the big message is we need to get this uh, vaccine out to the older population more generally. Now, they also mentioned in the report, and I wanted to get your your perspective on this as well, uh, that uh, this is great news about the vaccine and, and the efficacy of the vaccine, and we had hoped that the, the numbers were going to be this good. Uh, but the report goes on to say uh, that uh, there are other factors at play here, too, uh, that, that went into to the numbers that we've uh, just talked about here, that uh, it's not just the vaccine. There, there are other preventative measures, well, mask wearing, I guess, social distancing, and things of this nature. Uh, and the report seems to indicate that, uh, that we need to maintain that. I mean, even if you get the shot in the arm, that uh, you can't throw the mask away. Way, just pretend that uh, happy days are here again. No, and I, I think this is a really important piece of the report that we saw that the rates of infection were going down dramatically after also, you know, the start of the public health measures have been put in place in Ontario. And I know those measures are, have been difficult for people, but they're incredibly important. And so it shows that it is, you know, that we need to do all of the things that we've been continuing to do. You know, you know, keeping distances, mask wearing, all of those pieces clearly work. And so we need to be able to continue doing those. They're very important. Well, because we still are learning about this virus, are we not? Especially now that there are variants that are out there among us uh, about the impact that can have. And I, I read one report the other day that suggested that even if you've had, well, both shots of, of one of the vaccines, uh, that you could still not necessarily get sick, but you could still actually contract it. You could still carry it and pass it on to somebody else if, you, if we're going to start allowing people to go back into crowded environments. 
Yeah, there's so much that we don't know yet. I mean, this is clearly an evolving science, uh, and there is concern about um, the ability to still transmit. So I think people need to continue with those public health measures, like we've said, you know, things like thinking about distance, thinking about wearing masks. Those things are going to continue to be critically important. Um, You know, they work, and we have to make sure that we continue to follow them. Well, some people are labeling some of these things as draconian, the lockdowns and things of this nature. But uh, I guess we have to look at the data. And, and, you know, most of our political leaders, most, I should say, uh, are still saying we must follow the science. And the science seems to indicate that, uh, you know, if we can separate people and keep them from getting close to each other, it does see there's an impact on the numbers, isn't there? There very much is. And I know these things are really hard. Uh, and I know, you know, people, you know, want to go back to life the way they, they know it. But uh, for now, we know that these public health measures really do work. Uh, they're difficult, um, but people understand, I think, what they are now. And, as, and when we continue to follow them, we'll see the benefit. What have we learned from this experience? And I, I don't mean to talk in this in the past tense because we, we're not out of the woods yet certainly uh, but but clearly I mean we're getting the indication now that even when we knock this virus down and I'm hoping that's going to be sooner than later uh, there may well be others uh, not just variants on this but uh, you know uh, coronaviruses uh, pop up from time to time uh, we kind of got caught off guard with this one are we going to be smarter and wiser and more prepared next time Well, I think we have to be. I mean, we've learned a lot from this. And I think one of the things about viruses like this is uh, they expose, you know, what we say, you know, the cracks in our system and and where some of the inequities exist. And I think it has really, you know, pointed out some of the concerns and the major issues that exist in long-term care that we need to be able uh, to fix. You know, that there'll, there'll be the kinds of things that will make it better from an infection perspective, but make it better uh, for residents, you know, um, generally. So, you know, one of the things I think we need to think about is, you know, when we're looking at long-term care homes, you know, often it's it's large groups of people being cared for. We need to think about how do we care for people in long-term care homes in smaller groupings, you know, groupings of like 12 individuals. Um, You know, that sort of thing is better from an infection control perspective, but also better from a quality of life perspective. We also have to think about, you know, issues around shared rooms is another issue. You know, crowding uh, relates to spread of infection. And we need to look at, you know, how do we get uh, single rooms for people and private rooms, which is what, you know, people generally prefer. And then there's huge pieces that have come out related to the importance of uh, the workers that are providing the care. And, you know, how do we make sure um, that they, you know, get the kind of um, positions that they need uh, for their important role. You know, they need permanent roles um, that have um, sick time associated, paid sick time associated with them. These are all things that we've learned from the pandemic, uh, which will be important during a pandemic time, but they're going to be important uh, always. And so we need to learn from that and, and start putting those measures in place now. Yeah, and as we've been saying, I mean, a lot of the things that we're talking about here uh, predate uh, the pandemic. I mean, they were in existence in long-term care even before that. Uh, we're hoping, uh, I, I guess, all of us right now, do- right now, doctor, that, that the governments have the political will uh, to do these sorts of things. I think, as you say, uh, we don't need to study this anymore. I think we know what the problems are. Uh, what we're looking for here is the solutions and the funding for those solutions. And we're hoping that the, the federal and provincial governments can uh, can get that message. Uh, thank you so much for the time. It was great to get your perspective on this doctor stay well and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon thank you bye-bye take care dr paula roshan uh, from the university of toronto the women's college research institute there uh what about the vaccine program and the rollout uh, there's a, a mixed messaging that's going on right now and national polling that's being done says more and more people are, are a little skeptical about some of the timelines that the government's talked about well let's uh, go to the source and see if we can get the latest information on that and we're so pleased to welcome back to the program the federal procurement minister anita anand uh, joins us on the bill keller show minister thank you for the time glad to have you with us again Good morning, Bill. It's great to be here with you again. Uh, so much to talk about, Minister, in a, in a short amount of time. But let me get right to it. What's going on with Johnson & Johnson, first of all? We we were all excited when we found out that it finally got the thumbs up. Uh, and now uh, you're saying that there could be some pro- supply chain problems with Johnson & Johnson. What's the latest on that? Well, thanks for the question. Canada has ordered 10 million doses of the J&J vaccine. Uh, We've contracted for deliveries in the second and third quarters. 
with all of the doses to arrive before the end of September. And we understand the need for predictability for planning the vaccination schedule, but what we are hearing uh, from the company is that there are production challenges, not just affecting Canada, but affecting the other countries also uh, with whom J&J has contracted. And we are in regular touch with them in order to ensure the most expeditious route to having the J&J vaccine in Canada. It is a problem, I believe, relating to scaling up of vaccine production around the world. And it is to some extent to be expected, given that this is new technology and it is the largest mass vaccination campaign that our globe has ever seen. Well, if it happens uh, uh, the way that you are anticipating and hoping that it's going to happen, what does that do to the timeline about when we, the the general public, can actually start to roll up our sleeves? Well, I'd like to take a step back and give you a sense of what the delivery schedule means Mm -hmm. and entails. By the end of this week, close to 4.5 million doses of vaccine from multiple suppliers will be in Canada with this week's deliveries rolling out across the country already. And we are on track to receive another approximately 3.5 million by the end of this month for a total of 8 million doses in this first quarter of 2021 alone, up from 6 million. Then moving into the April, May, June timeframe, we are on track to receive a total of 36.5 million vaccines by the end of June and 118 million by the end of September. And that 36.5 million prior to the end of June does not include the J&J vaccines that we're going to be receiving or the uh, AstraZeneca vaccines under our bilateral contract. It's Moderna primarily. It's Pfizer Moderna um, primarily. And so what we are seeing is approved vaccines will be rolling into this country in a very accelerated way. The curve, as I say, is going to be very steep and all provinces and territories and local public health agencies are going to need to be all hands on deck. With that in mind, though, the, the, the Prime Minister's uh, timeline seemed to suggest that, he, I think it was by the end of September, he said that anybody who wanted a vaccine was probably going to be able to have one by then. Are you still confident about that? Well, this is a very important point. I am confident that we will have enough vaccine prior to the end of September for all Canadians to be vaccinated. But I will say that my sole focus right now as the minister in charge of buying and bringing vaccines into Canada is to get them here as fast as possible. So far, we've moved up the delivery of 2 million more doses into this first quarter alone so that we have 8 million arriving by the end of the month. And as I said, we're on track to receive 36.5 million doses by the end of June from approved suppliers alone. So deliveries are ramping up. You probably can see this on the ground at the provincial and the municipal levels. The pace is increasing and we look forward to the acceleration of vaccine administration to all Canadians to match the acceleration of the deliveries that we are seeing into this country. Minister, your government's also made some uh, investments, of course, in domestic production. And we had the announcement, of course, about the plant in Montreal. And uh, there's some other things going on, too, with the U.S.-based Novavax uh, vaccine uh, in Montreal, too. What's the status? Is there an anticipation that sometime in this calendar year we may see some production of, of these vaccines? Well, it's a great question. And, of course, just like we did with PPE, we are fostering and building a made-in-Canada uh, approach we indeed have a two-track approach to this. We wanted to make sure we get accelerated vaccines into Canada as soon as possible. That's via our seven advanced purchase agreements that we have signed with seven leading vaccine manufacturers. And at the same time, we are building up domestic capacity. So we have a contract in place with Medicago for the purchase of 20 million vaccines. Medicago, of course, is based in Quebec. In addition, we have recently signed an MOU with Novavax for the domestic production of vaccine that we are hoping will 
see results in this calendar year. Uh, that is a process that we are very much committed to, domestic production of vaccine, just like PPE is extremely important to our overall two-track strategy. Uh, now your time is tight. One final question, if I could, Minister. Uh, what have we learned from this process? I mean, we we wish, in I guess, in the perfect situation, that we had that, that ability to, to produce vaccines right here. You're starting to do that right now. Uh, when this virus is defeated, and we're hoping, again, that's going to be sooner than later, uh, is this commitment to vaccines and, and, and to these, these sorts of products, uh, whether it's PPE or vaccines, whatever the case might be, is the government committed to this on a long-term basis? Uh, I mean, we thought we'd learn from SARS, and, and it's not going to be hanging on your government because, I mean, the the, the the selling off of, of some of these companies and everything else happened long before you, this government took office. So it's there was a commitment or a lack of commitment, I guess, uh, that concerned us right now. Have we renewed that commitment, knowing that what's going to be happening going forward? Well, I'm really glad you put this in context. The answer is yes. We are committed to domestic uh, production and supply of vaccines and biomanufacturing, generally speaking, just as we are committed to domestic production of PPE. We need to be prepared across the board for any other future pandemic that might come our way. The context, as you mentioned, is extremely important uh, because this is decades and decades of governmental decision-making that has led to a situation which we made sure we were able to circumvent by entering into the seven agreements with leading vaccine suppliers for a total of up to 400 million doses for Canadians. But by all means, we are working across our government to make sure that we have domestic manufacturing of vaccines in place. And in that respect, I'd like to give a shout out to Minister Philomena Tassi and MP Bob Bertina for their fantastic work in the government and on these issues as well. More to come on this, of course, uh, with some announcements uh, later on this week, we're told as well. Minister, I know your time is tight. Thanks so much for spending a few moments with us today. Well, thank you so much, and I really look forward to chatting with you again soon. Take care. Thank you. Okay, sooner than later. Federal Procurement Minister Anita Anon giving us the latest on the, the J&J vaccine and uh, some of the other things that are certainly going to have an impact on the rollout. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Thursday marks the first anniversary of the World Health Organization uh, declaring a global pandemic. The UN agency said the COVID-19 vaccines are giving hope. But as uh, our report from uh, Inez de la Cuerta says, we're not out of the woods yet. The World Health Organization saying we'll have to wait for the passage of time and the diligent accumulation of data before we know just how long vaccine protections last. And when it comes to concerns over the emergence of new COVID-19 variants, the WHO's Dr. Terechi saying, quote, viruses that replicate do accumulate mutations. This is inevitable. With suppressed replications, there will be suppressed mutations, end quote, and adding the best way to protect us from super variants is immunity. Inez de la ABC News, Paris. So the question's on everybody's mind, of course, is when is this going to end? I mean, when are we going to get back to normal? Is there going to be another lockdown? Is there going to be a third wave? Well, there was a story in the numbers, and uh, the numbers are, well, some, something that we need to pay attention to. And we always talk about paying attention to the science, but there are some inevitabilities here, too, with statistical evidence. Uh, and uh, the Skarsgård Decision Support Team has actually uh, done some reporting on this. And uh, joining us to talk about the numbers and, and the story that it is telling us uh, is Paul Mitchell. Paul is the CEO of uh, Skarsgård Modeling Experts. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Thanks very much for having me, Bill. Well, these uh, these are the questions we're all asking, Paul, about what's going to be happening here. Uh, you've done a, an extensive study here with a number of different factors that you've thrown in. Maybe you could explain to our, our, our listeners just what kind of methodology you were using here. Um, yes, we've uh, developed um, a very detailed model that looks at, um, at how people interact in the community uh, and then how the virus uh, causes transmission. And then what we do is we look at all of the public health measures that are being implemented and, and how that causes people to reduce their contacts. And that allows us to actually forecast out um, what the spread of the disease will look like. I think um, what's also very important, though, is not just the cases, is uh, the hospitalizations and the mm -hmm. ultimate uh, deaths from it. Um, I think they're very, very relevant in the coming months as the vaccines are really game changers in that regard. And, uh, well, let's talk about some of the, the, the conclusions or 
things that we can extrapolate from this. And uh, maybe we'll get to some of the bad news, first of all, because you're saying a third wave is likely based on some of the factors that you've talked about uh, coming on. And I know people don't want to hear that, but uh, I think we have to kind of curb our enthusiasm about the fact that we're at the end of the line here and everybody's going to be vaccinated and, and everything's going to be fine by Labor Day. It's, it's just not going to happen that way, is it? Um, well, I think there, there's definitely a couple of phases that we're facing, and, and I just as much as all of your listeners don't want to hear bad news. I've been locked up in my house the same as everyone else, mm-hmm. um, and I had a transplant, so I'm a, a very high-risk individual waiting for my turn to get the vaccine. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, the, the coming phase here really deals with, you know, as different public health units in, in Ontario start to open up, go back to red or orange or even green, um, and the variants are growing, there, there's kind of an, <clears throat> an inevitable mathematics there that cases are going to start growing again. We saw that in kind of every other jurisdiction in Europe where they had the variant. Um, the vaccinations of things like the long-term cares and, and then moving through the elderly, um, that's going to have a huge impact on how many people actually get sick and die, but there's not enough quantity of that for at this stage to really impact the overall transmission. So, I mean, cases are going to go up in, in the coming weeks. Um, you know, will it, will it look like a hump on the curve? Yes, absolutely. So there will be an, a level of, of wave three. Um, how big does that get and how fast? That's still something I think we need a little bit more data to, to see that. Um, and then, you know, the question is, what's the response from um, public health units? I think the one bright side in this is, you know, as there's less risk, as as elderly people won't, you know, go in the hospital and die, you can kind of sustain more cases in the community. So I don't think you'd have to kind of react quite as quickly and as strongly as maybe wave two. It's an interesting factor here that you mentioned as well, though. You say moving back to the color code system uh, will increase general transmission again. Uh, a lot of critics, uh, critics about this color code system, about how ineffective it was. What, what does the data show? Um, <clears throat> well, I think, you know, there was definitely questions when one, one was rolled out and then it was replaced uh, two weeks later with something more stringent. Um, I, I think, you know, again, commenting on the framework of what it was before, and what it is now is different. Like, there is game-changing behavior now. Uh, when you look at, you know, how high the contribution of long-term care in elderly was to deaths and hospitalization. So if you can change that, then, as I said, you don't necessarily need to react in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, look, there's a practical reality that needs to be balanced with that, you know, which is, you know, again, businesses, um so, so, I mean, it's a tough balancing act for them. Uh, I think, you know, we generally see a wave three coming. There's going to have to be, you know, movements to gray, um, definitely for regions in Ontario, like Thunder Bay recently did. Um, whether it results in a kind of a broad provincial action, like I say, it's still a tiny bit early to tell on that. But the positive thing is, regardless of those, things will then get better. Um, um, you know, as the vaccines roll out in quantity, you know, coming back to like June and and then through the summer, things should move back into a very manageable position. And then as they roll out in the fall, things should definitely uh, slowly start to return to more sense of normalcy. Yeah, the numbers, uh, I, I'm just doing this off, off my head, but I've been reading statistics well, for a year now, I guess, Paul, just like you have. Uh, I think it's what long-term care residents, I think, are 1% of the population, and uh, they account for, what, 85%, I think it was, of, of the uh, the deaths of because of COVID-19. So you're right, if that number comes down, then everybody's number is going to come down, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the virus is going to stop spreading. It just may not be as impactful. Yeah, absolutely, and that's why I say, you know, like if you're, uh, you know, if your your listeners are in the Hamilton area, you, you maybe were used to a certain amount of cases that were occurring there. That same amount of cases in March and April does not carry the same amount of risk to it, um, and so you kind of need to adjust your expectations a little bit. You talked about the possibility of a lockdown, too, as you look at some of the data here right now. And, of course, partial or full, we don't really know. And these are political decisions, of course. We're not quite sure how the government's going to respond to this. Uh, if there is a third wave and those numbers start to creep up, and by the way, as you mentioned, in some jurisdictions that's already started, uh, Hamilton mm-hmm. said some concern about their numbers over the last little while, uh, last couple of weeks, I guess, right now, too. Uh, but 
the, then we're going to get back into the debate, Paul, about whether or not lockdowns are effective. And can you have a lockdown in in Toronto and, and not in Hamilton? Are people just going to gravitate and say, well, I'm still going up for dinner. I'm just going to go down the road a while uh, to get there, too, which doesn't really uh, help with the, the, the process of what's going on. Uh, other jurisdictions, of course, in the past have used total lockdowns. Uh, uh, how how can the government respond to this in an effective fashion? Because there's there's a mindset right now that we've just about got this thing beat, and and if if that's going to be the dominant line of thinking, I guess when decisions are going to be made politically, uh, we could be inviting well a third wave of significant value. Yeah, and you know, as I said, the risk is going down, but the transmission risk of the new variants is very high, and. Um, you know, so I think the one thing is, you know, generally the way we, we assess it is there's probably going to be a little bit more consistent behavior. Like there's no real reason why the trans, uh, the variants aren't going to cause acceleration in a lot of the jurisdictions. Um, and again, definitely this concept of, you know, I've locked down, you know, Holton, but not Peel or whatever, that, that there's no doubt that the cross um, region travel does have an impact on on increasing transmission in the area that's not locked down. Um, I think, you know, I think for bigger action to happen, like again at the provincial level, they're gonna you're gonna need to see really significant um, you know, concerning growth happening. And although that's possible, it's not materializing yet. But I you know, still think I still bring a lot of hope that you know whatever pain I think we need to go through in the next two to three months, there is very much optimism after that. Well, it, because we saw what happened last summer, and I know you've included that in, in in your report here that you know when the weather gets nicer, we're outside more, and we're not clustered inside homes all the time. Uh, we saw the numbers go down last summer, and you put that fact on the table, uh, plus the vaccination rollout, which is starting, uh, not as fast as we'd like, but it is starting. Uh, the, the, that's obviously going to be something on that side of the ledger that's going to probably you know get us a little closer to where we want to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think. You know, so I think there's optimism that, you know, I think the only risk, again, is, you know, and, and as one of your sound bites earlier in, 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 in the session talked about is the, you know, the growth of the variants. Um, so could other variants develop that, again, have an impact on the vaccines? I mean, you know, the experts have said yes. I mean, the one thing I would bring is a, a, a sense of confidence, though. Um, you know, we've worked in the life sciences industry for 20 years. So I think at this stage, you know, all of those major life sciences companies, the Pfizer's and so on, they have a really strong bead on this now. And so I think if we do, you know, see any challenges, I think they'll probably rise to the occasion and, and be able to deal with it efficiently. And I know you mentioned that in the report, and we should underscore this for our listeners as well, uh, that the data you've got here and, and, and some of the conclusions that you're, you're projecting here are based on the information you have today. Uh, and as you say, there could be some wild cards here, uh, more variants. Uh, you know, how, eff- how efficient is the vaccine against those variants? As of today, it looks like it's going to be okay. It looks pretty good. But that can change, and that would, that would skew these numbers considerably, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, and again, it's it's the really starting to differentiate between cases and the impact of cases. And, and mm-hmm. like I say, there's going to be a level of vaccine hesitancy out there, people that don't take it um, and the delay. So it's not like I think, you know, cases are going to go down to nothing. They're going to continue to um, progress along, and you kind of need to have that in your mindset. Um, but I think the biggest thing is, right, you know, right now there's a sense of everybody coming out of the lockdown there's no doubt that a lot of the determination on what happens is really how people behave. Um, and that's something we're following very closely in the mobility data, you know, looking at how, how quickly do people kind of get back to it. And I think the biggest risk is if they get back to too much normal in the next 30 days, then that's going to lead to, you know, faster transmission. So again, I think we all need to be a little bit patient just for a little bit longer, and then there's really truly light at the end of the tunnel. I was just talking about wild cards a second ago, Paul, and certainly human behavior, I think, is one of those wild cards, isn't it? But, I mean, you and your company have been doing this for many, many years now, uh, and, and based on that experience, it, it, is it fair to say that how we responded in, to lockdowns, uh, for instance, last summer, is probably the way we'd respond uh, this spring or summer if we have to go through another one? That, that we are, there's going to be, a, as you say, some people that just aren't going to pay any attention to it. But by and large, uh, we tend to, to play by the rules. Um, 
I would I would say yes. I mean, when we're doing our modeling right now, no, we wouldn't assume the same level of kind of responsiveness as last summer. You know, we generally would assume there's a little bit of pandemic fatigue that's set mm-hmm. in, and so we would, you know, our assumptions are things won't be quite as stringently adhered to as last summer. Um, the question is, does it get out of that range? And, you know, do is there too much sense of just going right back to, to full normal? Because um, I think you have to be realistic at this stage. Well, and therein lies the debate that, that's starting to, to, to fester right now about what is normal now. Uh, is, is normal going to be, yes, you got your vaccination, but you still have to wear a face mask? And as you know, there's some jurisdictions well down in the States right now uh, that are suggesting that, no, after you get your vaccinations, you, you're fine. You can go to a restaurant, you can take your mask off, you can socialize, you can do whatever you want, which seems to run contrary to what we were told even two, three weeks ago and you know, at this side of the border and in most jurisdictions down in the States, too. And the mixed messaging, I guess, is, is something that I think it confuses an awful lot of people. Yeah, I mean, uh, to be frank, I mean, those those kinds of recommendations are crazy. I mean, they're just not supported by any logic at all. Um, I think you only have to look. I mean, there's a recent article in CBC on, um, you know, an outbreak at a long-term care facility in BC that was largely vaccinated. So, you know, vaccines, you know, can protect you in terms of the severity, but there still can be uh, potential levels of transmission. Right. So we need to be very cautious. And, you know, this sense of you know, not having to wear masks and, and do distancing, I think, you know, that that's unrealistic. You know, we're going to need to stick with that. Uh, you know, I would say probably for, you know, the rest of the year um, to, to ensure we're truly out of the woods on this. And, you know, remember, there's a, you know, a lot to vaccinate the population. Well, yeah, we've talked, uh, we just had the supply minister, uh, Minister Nana, just uh, before you joined us on the program, and she talked about the number of vaccines that have been ordered. Uh, and that's, well, it's an impressive number, of course, but uh, uh, what we're looking for here is, okay, how do you get them into people's arms as quickly as possible? And and there's always going to be some problems when, with that pr- process, and we've already started to see that experience. But uh, it's it's a race here, really, isn't it? I mean, because we know about the variants. We know that there's probably going to be a, a spike here as we start to open up a little bit more. That's happened every other time that's, that we've tried to do this, a reopening of such. Uh, but on the other side here with this, well, how, how quickly can we all get vaccinated? You're waiting, certainly, because of, of your situation. I know other people that are in similar circumstances and saying, when is it going to be my turn? Uh, but whenever that happens, uh, I think you're right. We still have to be cognizant of the fact that we still have to be wary for some time yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you know, the facts bear out. Um, you know, Canada's lagged against other countries in the actual deployment in arms, right? So that's mm-hmm. all that counts is it has to go into people's arms for it to have an impact. And, you know, Canada's lagged in that. Um, you know, again, the approval now of, of, of four vaccines and the, you know, potential supply are, are huge upsides. But, you know, we have to also demonstrate an ability to efficiently distribute those and to deploy them in arms. And again, I, I think, you know, there are, people that challenge the system that we should be treating this much more as a sense of emergency and increasing the capacity by which people are injected. So I think there's, you know, there's still open risk there on how fast that can happen. And that is absolutely the single biggest positive benefit and everything getting back to normal. Yeah, I sometimes think we need a refresher course as to just how deadly this virus can be. It may not kill you, uh, but we do know it can have some long-term uh, medical effects on young and old alike. Uh, it's it's not the sort of thing you want to contract and say, I don't, it's no big deal. It is a big deal to an awful lot of people. Uh, and you don't know it's, it's you know the impact it's going to have on your body. Uh, and we need to be aware of that, which is one of the reasons why, as you mentioned, uh, we've, we've got to you know be diligent about this and do the things that we're supposed to be doing. Uh, you don't, you know, well, I don't need to wash my hands as much because it looks like the vaccine's on the way well certainly you do uh, because the last thing you want to do is cause something like that and it's, it's going to be hard to get that messaging across there isn't it yeah it is but i think again like you know people need to kind of understand this isn't necessarily something that you know they're asking like we need this for the next 300 days it's like i think the next 30 to 60 days are enormously critical um to that particularly as we get into phase two right on the vaccines you know like mm-hmm. i say i'm i'm a transplant i probably have a 15 percent chance of dying of this my dad's 80 years old he has cancer and a transplant like there are still many people out there with a mortal risk of dying of getting this 
and we can't kind of let up at this stage. And, and again, passing another 30, 60 days, allowing the government to then vaccinate these high risk and that changes the profile. So I don't think the ask from people is unreasonable to just stay vigilant for this next period. Well, and uh, to make sure the messaging is strong enough and, and understood, obviously we need facts, and uh, you've uh, done a great job of, of giving us a presentation and giving us perspective on this. Paul, thank you so much for the great work that uh, you and the organization has done on this, and uh, thanks for the time today. And listen, good luck. I hope you get that vaccine real soon. Absolutely. And one last point, too. I'm moving to Hamilton in the next uh, two months, so I look forward to being part of the town. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Well, you're going to love it here. Paul Mitchell, uh, CEO, Scarson Modeling Expert. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about what's going on with the vaccine rollouts and the uh, the mixed messaging that we're getting on this. We touched on this just a few minutes ago in our last segment, but it's uh, it's something I want to expand on right now because I think one of the frustrations we're all feeling as we head towards the one year anniversary of the declaration of this as a pandemic is uh, is. We're hearing one thing from one group, one thing from another, and we're always told, oh, well, follow the science. And most of the time, these are scientists, but they seem to have different points of view on things. And, for instance, you've got the uh, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention down in the United States has now said that uh, the people who have had the uh, the vaccine, both shots of the vaccine, uh, can start to socialize again and maybe even get into crowds, go to ball games, whatever the case might be. But as uh, Sagar Magani reports, uh, new health guidelines say fully vaccinated Americans can get together without wearing masks. The guidance comes as more adults get vaccinated and wonder what that means, if they can visit family or shop or travel. These new recommendations are an important first step to our in our efforts to redu- resume everyday activities in our community. CDC Chief Rochelle Walensky says the guidance notes even unvaccinated people who are not high risk can gather indoors without masks with those who are vaccinated, meaning, for example, grandparents can see their grandkids. But the guidance also continues discouraging travel, which may be confusing for vaccinated Americans who now want to hit the road to see family. Sagar Magani, Washington. So, how do we, how do we take all this information in, and how do we make judgments about exactly what we're going to do? I mean, it's the same, it's the same virus, isn't it, down there that it is up here? Yet there seem to be different messaging uh, from the health organizations. Uh, maybe a, a better understanding of how they come to these determinations about what we should and shouldn't be doing might be helpful too. Uh, to uh, join our conversation, so pleased to welcome to the program uh, Barry Peaks, professor with the Dalai Lama School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Professor, thank you for the time. Glad you could be here with us today. Hi, good morning. What do you make of, of the different messaging that's going on right now? You can't do this, you shouldn't do this, keep wearing a mask even after you're vaccinated. No, you don't need to wear a mask anymore. It's uh, For, for the, the person who's trying to understand exactly what we're supposed to be doing, uh, it's an awfully confusing situation. Sure. Uh, you know, there, there are confusing bits to what's going on. And, you know, over the past year, there certainly have been times when it'd be hard for people to understand the messing messaging. But I think actually, in this case, it's pretty clear, you know, while you, you noted that the virus is the same, no matter where you are, the pandemic is really very different. And so the situation in the United States is such that it's not unreasonable to provide the advice that the CDC just provided about vaccinated people getting together with others unmasked. But our situation in Ontario, uh, and in Canada is very, very different. So they're able to say that in the United States because they have well over 20% vaccinated with two doses and they're on the, you know, almost 100 million doses across the country. In, in Canada, we are far less than that. We're around five or 6%. Um, and we've still got the, the variants of concern that are actually on their way up there. So, um, you know, we need to listen to the advice provided in our specific location because you know, that the advice is really related to where we are in the pandemic, not just the virus itself. So we're going to see that in Canada. We're going to see that vaccinated people are going to be able to gather with others, but not for quite some time now until we're really able to see a far greater proportion vaccinated. How strong and how efficient is the vaccine? Maybe that's another one of the questions I'd love you to address, Professor. Uh, d- does it make you bulletproof that, that you're not going to get COVID-19? You're, you're out of the woods if you if you had both doses or the, or one vo- dose of the J&J, I guess. 
Well, so, you know, each one has a sli- each vaccine has a slightly different profile. But what's in common with all of them is they provide pretty much 100 percent protection against severe illness and death, which is really the thing where, you know, obviously everyone is most concerned about. But people don't want to get infected either. And the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, are around 95 percent as far as we've seen. The others a little bit less in the 60s and 70s, but they were actually tested and trialed under somewhat different circumstances. So, you know, if it were myself, I would not hesitate to get whichever vaccine I was up for. Um, But it doesn't make you bulletproof. You know, even the 95% still means one out of 20 may get the the virus. And when we have the virus spreading in the community, then one out of 20 is a pretty big risk. When the virus is, you know, much lower rates in the community, then one in 20 is not nearly as much of a risk, which is why the advice is going to differ in different areas, certainly between different countries, but also different parts of Canada. There was some concern raised a couple of weeks ago, and, and as we were saying earlier in the program, I mean, we're learning more about these things almost every day now as we get more data about this, but concerns that even if you were inoculated and got both shots, uh, that you could still carry the virus and still spread it to somebody else. Yeah, that is a a possibility. In other words, we haven't proven that you cannot carry it. But there's actually really good data out of Israel that you're much less likely to carry it, or even if you're carrying it, it's much lower levels and much less likely to be spread. So we're not definitively saying that you can't carry it and spread it, but I think it's very clear that it's much less likely for you to carry it and spread it. And so, you know, that advice is going to be coming through, and that's going to be part of what we're, you know, what we're going to see in the next month, perhaps six weeks to eight weeks in terms of advice. One of the other questions I'm hearing from my listeners an awful lot, and maybe you could add some clarity to this, is how do you make the determination or how do the, the people who are making uh, the, the protocols and the rules here uh, make the determination about what we can do? For instance, in other words, you can now get together with a group of 12 people as opposed to five. Uh, what, where did the number come from? It's, it can't be arbitrary. No, well, you know, there are many different things that are inputted into this in, into these considerations. The most important one from a science perspective is, you know, looking at the rates in the community, um, looking at positivity rates, and then, you know, putting all of those things, not only those two things, many others, into models and saying, you know, how likely is it that you're going to encounter, um, you know, the virus in this or that situation, in this number of people? And based on that, and based on the direction we're going overall in the pandemic, you know, those numbers are, are, are determined. You know, there are other considerations there. So, you know, ultimately it is in Ontario, the cabinet that is actually making some of these decisions. And so, you know, there are other considerations like the economic considerations, mental health of the community. Um, and, and they need to change. You know, those those um, colors that we had from the model that was created a couple months ago are, are still valuable. But several health units are making slight tweaks on them based on the evidence. So it does change all the time. Yeah. We were told, and even in the United States where the CDC is, is maybe the word we should use here is relaxing uh, some of the protocols, uh, Dr. Walensky is still suggesting no travel. Uh, is, is there a concern here about getting people together in, in large numbers, like on an airplane or something, or is it simply the fact that if you go from one jurisdiction to the next, you, you could be a carrier? Yeah, it, it's a matter of you could be a carrier, and it just is harder to manage this pandemic from an epidemiologic standpoint, which is, you know, from a public health perspective, that's what we look at when people are moving around. And and I think, you know, there are two elements uh, that are really important to remember from, from Dr. Walensky's CDC um, recommendations. You know, one was people can start gathering if they're, if they're vaccinated in very specific circumstances, um, but that even if you're vaccinated, when you're going out in public, you absolutely have to continue wearing a mask and physical distancing and all those other things. You know, that's an element that was forgotten. Um, and that is really important part of the, you know, the population perspective, the social dynamics, as opposed to what an individual can do. So with that in mind, then, and, and the fact that we're, we're hopefully seeing a light at the end of the tunnel here as that vaccination plan rolls out, and uh, I, your point's well taken that, uh, you know, we're, we're lagging behind. I know we're 40th right now, I guess, with the efficacy of our rollout program. We, we thought we were going to be number one, and that's just not happening. But we're at the comfort level, and I guess the, the confidence level uh, in being able to socialize once again is going to rise considerably, I would think, as, as we get that number higher. Absolutely. And, and I'm, you know, we're all looking forward to that. I'm personally looking forward to it. But we also have to temper that enthusiasm with the reality that these variants of concern are, are they are increasing exactly as we, we said they would about two months ago. So right now we're looking at about 35 percent that are these more transmissible variants. You know, two weeks ago it was half that. Two weeks before that it was half. 
And so in two to three weeks from now, when it's up to 60%, potentially, you know, there is this possibility of, of a, uh, an increase. I'm not going to call it necessarily a third wave, but a pretty significant increase where, you know, we're going to have to look at these measures again. And I don't think at that point we're going to have enough people vaccinated to be able to avoid some of those other measures. We might have enough of the older people uh, vaccinated so that we'd be able to prevent hospitalizations and death. So, you know, we're, we're in a bit of an uncertain time. So it's hopeful, but we can't let our guard down yet. But that's a good point because, you know, we're looking at some of the numbers that the province released yesterday about the, the long-term care facility rollout, vaccine rollout, and, and the, the, the efficiency of that program. And that's, it sounds wonderful. Those are very encouraging numbers. Uh, the fact that we've done what we can so far anyway to protect that element, uh, as those other cases start to rise, as, what kind of an impact is that going to have? Because the most vulnerable seem to have been looked after. Uh, and as you say, it's not bulletproof. that It can still happen. I mean, we have to be careful about who goes in and out of those facilities and the hygiene and all that sort of stuff that that we've been following for the last year but is is it going to be a situation where we're going to see the much many more cases but they're not going to be as severe i think that you know that is what we're hoping for certainly and and we are already seeing as you've noted uh been in long-term care facilities uh, certainly among the residents who've been almost you know universally vaccinated some of the staff uh, have not been vaccinated yet. So we're seeing, you know, a couple people bringing it in here and there, but dramatically improved situation in long-term care. Now, unfortunately, in other places, you know, I mentioned Israel already, and they've had an excellent vaccine uh, rollout, but they are still having far more cases of COVID than we are now because it really is uh, infecting younger people. They are less likely to get very sick. But when you have that many people getting it, you're still seeing children and younger people getting sick and some of them dying as well. So, you know, we can uh, we can open up a bit and we can be a bit more confident, um, but we're definitely not out of the woods yet. Uh, let me just, if I could, sw- swing into the, to the concept of, of this herd immunity that we're shooting for uh, with any kind of a vaccine. And there's a certain level of the population that has to be vaccinated for that to happen. Uh, and, and we've heard anywhere from 75 to 90 percent, uh, something of those numbers. Uh, most of us, I guess, is the best way to put this. Uh, there's a rather troubling statistic I saw yesterday, though, Professor, that suggested that one in four Americans have no intention of being vaccinated, uh, which means that if, if the other 75 percent do, they they fall below that bar. What happens when you don't have that herd immunity? Does, is the virus still going to be there? Is it still going to be prevalent? Yes, it will. You know, that that is going to happen. And at some point, herd immunity is going to happen because a lot of those people who don't get vaccinated are, in fact, going to become ill. But that's not something most of us are comfortable with. You know, I, I think we, you know, it's important to look to our neighbors to the south, but it's also important to remember they've had a different approach this whole time. They just have a higher threshold a higher comfort with with more deaths you know they've had 25 times more deaths than we have despite having only 10 times the number of the population and far more health care resources to care for those people so you know i'm, I'm hoping and i'm pretty confident that canadians are going to take the vaccine we've all seen you know hundreds of millions of doses 300 million doses around the world and and it is clearly safe it is clearly working and, and i'm pretty confident that canadians are going to behave differently than americans we'll get vaccinated and and i'm looking forward to a much better summer but the virus actually never goes away, though, does it? I mean, it's it's like the flu vaccines. I mean, there's always going to be flu every year. Uh, can we anticipate that this virus, this coronavirus, is going to be there lurking in the background? You know, it, every virus is somewhat different. And so influenza has an ability to mutate in a somewhat different way. Um, and, and it looks like our vaccines are pretty good against most of the variants that we've got so far. It, it really is. Um, you know, like everything in this pandemic, despite the fact that we're a year into it, there are still a lot of uncertainty. So we will just have to wait for that. But I think no matter you know which scenario, the best or the worst that arises, I think it's going to be much better than the situation we've been in for the past year. So, you know, I, I'm reasonably confident that even if we do have some escape variants or this virus is around for much, much longer, it's not going to have the impact on our society that it has been. I mean, I, I still remember as a, a young child, the, the scourge there was polio, uh, and the vaccination was developed. Uh, you know, we were inoculated, and polio didn't go away because I know a couple of years ago when, when the anti-vaxxers seemed to, to dominate in some jurisdictions, uh, polio started to come back in some third-world countries. So just uh, that's why I was asking. It's still there, and if we, if we drop our guard, uh, there could be severe consequences. 
Yeah, you know, every, you know, we, we could talk a long time about this because it is really interesting how every virus is different. Polio happens to be able to be transmitted, you know, it, it, through fecal oral routes, through, you know, through sewage, and we can find mm-hmm. it that way. But, you know, there were a couple hundred thousand people with, you know, getting polio every year with severe consequences only, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And now we have in the neighborhood of, you know, 10, 20, 30 cases over the whole planet. So, you know, it's still there. We still need to get that vaccine every year. But, you know, nowhere near as significant impact uh, as it has been in the past. And, and I think that'll be the case with COVID, although, you know, we still have to worry about the next COVID. And, and, and there have been many over the past decade and a half since SARS between Zika and, and um, the H1N1 flu and Ebola. So, you know, we have to keep our guard up and, and invest in public health because that's really been part of the challenge here. Uh, and again, I, I, I don't want to make an apples to apples comparison between the coronavirus and, and the flu. Uh, but, you know, we have to get an annual flu shot. I get a flu shot every year, of course, for, for mm. whatever variances are going to be along. I, I guess I'm asking you to crystal ball a little bit. Are we going to have to be getting annual boosters about, uh, about this virus as well? You know, that is something we really I don't anticipate that. However, you know, this vaccine has only been around for four months now, three, three, three to four months. And so, you know, whether or not we have protection over a year to two years um you know we really just don't know we're going to find out and ontario is going to find out earlier than others in some ways because you know we're extending that second dose over uh four months rather than Mm -hmm. just three weeks and so you know if we see waning immunity then you know we're going to know it there are people studying that but i i don't anticipate that's going to happen just because of the you know the biology of the virus and the and the exact biology of the of the vaccine i don't think that'll be the case here are you comfortable with that extended uh, time space between the, the two shots? Yes. You know, I think it is really important for us to get as many first doses as possible, as quickly as possible. And unfortunately, we just didn't have the amount of vaccine uh, that we needed to have, you know, initially. And we still don't have that. It really is coming. We're getting a million doses next week and, and 23 million in the first in the next quarter. And so I think we'll be in a good place to probably do it much faster than every four months. You know, I don't think we're going to need to extend it that far. But I think that was a good move uh, across Canada, starting with Dr. Henry in B.C. And, you know, and, and we embraced it. You know, I think that's definitely a good strategy. So many questions. Always great to get uh, perspective on this. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you. Have a good morning. You too. Professor Barry Pakes from uh, the Dadaline School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Uh, keep the questions coming, and we'll keep our experts up here and uh, try to answer as many of them as we can as we go forward on this. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.